We will not be in the book of Philippians this morning. We're going to take a little bit of a break from our Philippians study as we are in this Christmas season. Some of you are aware, and uh, if you're not aware, you're about to be, about some of my, uh, my interesting relationship with Christmas over the years. This kind of goes back to my college days where as I just was reflecting upon all the things that were happening around me and reflecting upon uh, what, what the scriptures had to say and just really wrestling with the ideas that, you know, some of the cultural practices that surround this holiday of Christmas, I just couldn't square those cultural practices with what we were claiming the holiday was supposed to be all about. I didn't have anything, I didn't see anything wrong necessarily with these different celebrations, with Christmas lights and trees and gift givings. I didn't see them as being sinful on their own. I just couldn't reckon with, well, how do those things reflect and how do those things teach us about Christ? I, 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 I didn't see the connection. I, I, to me, there was a significant disconnect. And in fact, in many ways, I thought that there was even the potential and often observed this myself that these cultural expressions actually detracted from what the holiday was supposed to be about. And I was under conviction in that way. In fact, for, for a, a number of years, I, I, uh, <laughs> I created a blog, and I would blog about Christmas, and I would blog about one time a year. You could expect around Christmas time that there would be a blog coming from Ken about these different things about Christmas. And now if you're sitting here and worried about I'm about to blast Christmas. Well, that's not the case this morning. I'm, I'm not here to do that today. I do think there's freedom in Christ to celebrate different holidays and to celebrate them in different ways, and we can do so with joy and with gladness, and, and we can do so as we would choose. As an aside, I would, I would challenge us to just reflect and consider, okay, how, how do we celebrate? What does the things that we do when we celebrate, what does that communicate about what we say we believe and what we say we're celebrating? I would challenge us to think about that, but that goes for every holiday, not just Christmas. That you, we could even say that that goes for all of life. But my point about all this is that even though as I have struggled with some of those issues, and quite honestly, I kind of do still struggle with those things at times, or uh, seeing some of those uh, cultural expressions and the religious implications, how those things come together. The reality is, is that we do have something to celebrate, do we not? We do have something tremendous to celebrate, something to rejoice about. I mean, the God of the universe, the Creator, the one who made all things and who sustains us even now, entered into the world. To save sinners. That is worth celebrating. That is worth rejoicing over. That text from 1 Timothy says, It is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And guess what? I'm a sinner. So that's for me. Jesus Christ came to save. This is good news. So by all means, yes, let's celebrate Christmas. And let's celebrate it with great joy. So over these next three Sundays, as we are in this this Christmas season, I do want to kind of take our minds and and focus our minds a little bit in this direction. And as we'll be considering these things again on Christmas Eve as well, to help us think through and consider who Jesus Christ is. And 
there's not going to be anything revolutionary in these next three, uh, these next three Sundays. Um, these are th- things that I'm sure will be things that you have heard time and time again, but it is always good for us to remind ourselves and to be reflecting upon who it is that Christ has done so that we might be filled with a genuine joy. Not just joy because, hey, this just, it's just the season that we're in and we're supposed to be joyful, but no, a genuine joy that reflects upon who Christ is. I mean, this is what Paul has been calling us to as we've gone through the book of Philippians. In some ways, we could have just stayed in Philippians because there's a theme of joy right there in this. We talk about how this season is supposed to be about joy. It's about who Jesus is. And so the text that we are going to be kind of using as our, kind of our baseline as we consider who Christ is, is Luke chapter 2. And let's turn there briefly. And we're going to be, we're going to be a bit all over the place today. So I apologize for that in advance. This might be one of those Sundays where it's just like, okay, I'm just going to jot down scripture references and look them up later because we are going to be moving through things and quite a few passages and quite rapidly. But the text of Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, this is in the context of when the angels were announcing to the shepherds that Jesus Christ had come. And they declare the birth of our Lord. And the angels say this in Luke chapter 2 verse 11, For unto you is born this day. In the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. So over the next three weeks, by God's grace, we're going to look at each of those three titles that are found in that one verse. He is our Savior, He is the Christ, and He is Lord. We're going to look at each of those. What does it mean that Jesus is Savior? What does it mean that He is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One? And what does it mean that He is Lord? We're going to be looking at these things a bit thematically, so hence the, the bit of a, a rapid passage flipping as we move through things. I want us to consider... What does it mean that He is Savior, Christ, and Lord? So today, for today, we're going to be looking at Jesus as Savior. Who is He saving? Why is it that those who He is saving, why do we need saving? What are we saved from? What are we being saved to? And again, no revolutionary concepts here today, but good reminders and reflections upon our Savior. So, I'm going to take us back to the beginning. Let's go back to Genesis. All the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, we see the manner in which God has created the world. And I guess I want to say first, before we even get into that, is as we're considering this concept of Savior, that unto you is born this day a Savior. And, and we have the, the noun there of a, of a Savior, that's a, a person, that's a, someone who is saving. We have the verbs of to save, I am saving you, to save. We have 
the description of, of what that person is doing there, providing salvation. Well, we have Hebrew words and we have Greek words that are translated as Savior or salvation or to save in both the Old and the New Testaments. And these words can be defined in similar ways in both the Hebrew and the Greek. It speaks of rescue. It speaks of deliverance. Someone who saves, someone who rescues. Deliverer, rescuer, savior. You get the idea. It's the concept of there's, there's a trouble, there's a difficulty, there's a, there's a problem. We're being delivered from that. We're being rescued from that. We're saving, being saved from that. So now with that in mind, we're going to go back again to Genesis, where we do see the way in which God has created the world. Right? And in the beginning, a God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void. It was formless. It was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. An endless abyss existing. And God speaks. And just by His very words, we see the display of His power and the display of His might, the display of His glory as He creates the world. And we don't have time to go through each of the individual days, but we see that God creates and He, he forms and He shapes and He fashions. And at the end of each day, what does it say? God saw that he, what He had made and it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. We see that from days one through five. And then we come to the sixth day. And we see God creating living creatures and animals and the things that that creep upon the earth. And God saw that it was good. We see that repeated again there. But then God wasn't finished on that sixth day. There was one more work that God had yet to create. And we're going to pick that up in verse 26 of of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over the earth and over everything that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. But this time, God sees what he has made. And he doesn't say that it is good. He says, it is very good. Verse 31, God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. It was very good. God created man in his own image. Made to be his representatives on the earth. To rule over the earth. To have dominion over the earth. 
We see in chapter 2 God placing mankind in the garden, and they were to work the garden, to, to, to keep the garden, to tend it, to work for its flourishing. And we see at the end of Genesis chapter 2 that there was no shame. There was an expression of innocence in the midst of all that. There's, at this point, there's no sin in the world, no hardship, no difficulty, no shame, no, no vulnerability that could be exploited by sinful intentions. Mankind was created to work in the most noblest way possible, to represent God on the earth, created as His image, to have dominion over the earth. Innocence, perfect righteousness. At this point, there's no need for a Savior, right? What would He even be saved from? I know, there's perfection here. But we know that there is more to the story, don't we? We know what flows out from here. Sadly, this is where things take that downward turn, and we see the fall as it comes to us in Genesis chapter 3. Eve, being tempted by the serpent, eats the forbidden fruit and gives to her husband, and he eats. And all of creation is turned on its head. Though God had given the man the role of leadership, he abdicated his responsibility of protecting his wife and rebuking the serpent. Instead, he, despite being right there with his wife, partakes of the fruit that Eve had partaken of, submitting to an animal rather than having dominion over what God had created. Instantly, things changed. Instantly, they knew that they were no longer innocent. And and since I'm no longer innocent, that means this other individual that is here with me, they're no longer innocent. And now I am now vulnerable. So there was guilt, shame, fear. And when God came to walk with them in the garden as what was likely His habit to do to to continue that relationship with them in the garden, they hid themselves because they felt the guilt of their own sin weighing upon them. They knew that they had transgressed the word of the Lord. So in their guilt, in their shame, they were covering themselves and hiding from the Lord. And now we... Come to Genesis 3, verse 14 and following, where we see the devastating words from our Lord. Bringing the curse upon His rebellious creation. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bear forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and yet he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you. 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So through Adam and Eve's sin, now the curse of sin comes upon all creation. Upon the ground, upon the plants, upon the animals, upon all creation, upon work itself. This is why work, though work is still a good and virtuous thing, it is now toilsome to us today. This is why we have struggles with authority and issues within our homes, within our churches, within our society, because it all comes back to this point in history. When mankind rebelled. And so we find at the end of chapter 3 that God drives them out of the garden. Verse 24, He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Not only was God separating Adam and Eve from possibility of partaking of the of the tree of life, but there's also that separation that is now physically felt. You know, God would come down and walk in the midst of the garden and fellowship with mankind, and now mankind can't even enter the garden where that once took place. There is now this separation, spiritual death between God and man. There may not be a more depressing passage of Scripture than this one. The fall of mankind. Ambassadors for God who once spoke with Him face to face, who once lived in innocence and perfection, now have a broken relationship with the Lord. Kicked out of the garden, forced to work the ground through blood, sweat, and tears. And every human being that's been born into the world since then has been born into this sin-cursed world bearing the consequences of the sin of these first parents. Now all of a sudden, mankind needs a Savior. Mankind needs a Savior. Even in the midst of God's curses on the world because of sin, He gives, he gives a glimmer of hope that a Savior would one day come. Back in Genesis 3, verse 15, where God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And I actually prefer the the New American Standard translation of this verse because it uses the word seed rather than offspring because that's that's a more literal rendering of the Hebrew. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We have hints of the gospel in this text right here. Technically speaking, a woman doesn't have a seed. So right here we may have a hint of the virgin birth, even here. A child would one day be born who would, yes, be bruised by the serpent. But ultimately, that child would crush the head of the serpent. There is a Savior coming. This is often referred to as what is called in theological realms the proto-evangelium or the first giving of the gospel. We have this initial glimmer of hope that there would one day come someone who would set things right. 
through the rest of the book of Genesis, there are little hints and, and shadows here and there that, that, that seem to indicate that, that the, the people, even, even in these early days, even as they were living with, with very little revelation from God, just a few things that God had communicated to them, yet they were looking forward to, with hope, to someone who might someday come. We don't have time to look at all of those instances, but I do want us to look over to when God addresses Abraham. So let's go over to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham, this is, well, of course, one of the, de- the descendants of Adam and Eve, a descendant all the way, all the way through. And we find God calling Abraham out of his own nation to go to a land that he would show him, giving a promise of, a, of, a, of an offspring that would one day come, that would bless the whole world. Now, this is Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house, to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name a great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who will bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's an initial promise to Abraham that he is going to do something special with Abraham, special with his offspring, grow them into a great nation. And through them there would come one who would bless all the families of the earth. Later in Genesis chapter 15, God confirms this promise with Abraham and says, There will be, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars of the heavens and sand on the beaches. And he ratifies it with a formal covenant. And though we do not yet have the formal language of salvation and the formal language of rescue and, and deliverance here in these texts, we do see this, this glimmer of hope that there would one day come through this line, one who would redeem, and one through whom the entire world would be blessed. And we know how much of the story unfolds from there, and there is, there is there's much that we can look at, but I'm going to take us to a passage of Scripture that that kind of recounts this whole story of from Abraham all the way on through to the end of what is essentially the, the narrative portion of the Old Testament. I'm going to take us to Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah, and we're going to, we're going to go to chapter 9. Nehemiah, chronologically speaking, is towards the end of the New Test of the Old Testament, rather. Excuse me, towards the end of the Old Testament. Now, in our Bibles, physically, we have all, there's many, many books and many uh, pa- passages that occur after Nehemiah. Right? There's there's all the prophets and uh, all the poetry and all these things that occur. But but chronologically speaking, when we're looking at the timeline of things, Nehemiah is the last of the narrative portions of the Scripture, chronologically speaking. This is after God has, the, the people of Israel had been sent into exile and he'd been brought back into the land and Nehemiah has seeking to establish them in the land once again and rebuild the city. And we have here in chapter 9 the people as they reflect upon all that God had done 
and yet they're rebellion. And they are seeking to make themselves right with God. There is a sense in which ever since the point of Genesis chapter 3, that mankind has been looking for a deliverer. And that has expressed itself in different ways in different times, but there is a sense in which that is true. And I think we see that expressed a little bit, even through this time. This, this Nehemiah chapter 9 is the longest recorded prayer in all of Scripture. It is the longest recorded prayer. And we went through this as a, uh, as a Bible study Sunday evenings back when we were moving through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Those, those lessons are recorded and online if you ever wanted to go back and listen to those. But we're going to pick things up in Nehemiah chapter 9 and begin with verse 6. Again, this is the prayer of the people as they are confessing their sin and lamenting the sin of their forefathers and why they are where they are to that day and seeking to move forward with the Lord. And this is a lengthy passage, but I'm going to read through it as it recounts the history of the people. And I will make commentary on things as we go. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And we know the story of how they ended up in the land of Egypt and how God brought them down there initially for their protection and their preservation of life through the famine, and yet they were enslaved. And so now this, the prayer continues on in verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all their servants and all the people of the land, for you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers." You made a name for yourself as it is to this day. It is this story of of God bringing the people up out of the land of Egypt that we find the first theme of the concept of deliverance first made explicit in the biblical account. Exodus chapter 2 verse 23 says that the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And so God sends them a deliverer. God sends them Moses. And so we see verse 11 of Nehemiah 9. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. And by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and command and, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. 
You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had swore to give them. They're recounting the marvelous works of God, the great things that He had done. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had saved them from this, and now He has given them the good law. But, verse 16 begins with that word, but. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. Stiffened at their neck. They did not obey your commands, but they refused to obey. They were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they were stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who has brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouth or give them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. We see the the mighty miracles of God as He continues to sustain them and and provide for them and help them, even as they are living in often rebellion and, and groaning and grumbling against the Lord, yet He is patient with them. And God eventually brings them into the promised land. And and so the Israelites, again, they continue to recount what God has done. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Shihon, king of Heshbon, and and the land of Og, king of Bashan, You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olives, orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. We see that story through the book of Joshua, of God bringing them into the land and driving out the peoples before them and establishing them in the lands. But this next paragraph details out the book of Judges. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of your enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. God saved them. They, and we see this through the, through the book of the Judges. They, they would go through this cycle where they would walk in rebellion against the Lord, and, yet God, and so God would judge them, and they would cry out to the Lord for mercy, and God would send them these judges to 
rescue them, to save them, to deliver them. But the testimony of the book of Judges is striking. I'm going to read from Judges chapter 2, verse 18. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge Whenever the judge died, they turned their back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. And they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Though the judges called them back to the Lord at different points, they continued in their rebellion. And so, in, again, back in Nehemiah chapter 28, we see this cycle going on. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you'd warned them to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules which is, if a person does them, he shall live by them. But they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. We see it as the book of Judges ends, and we see the, the final verse of the book of Judges states, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it makes us think, aha, a king. That's what these people need. They just need a king, and that's what the people thought as well. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we see how Samuel was, in many ways, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And the people cried out to him, Samuel, give us a king. And God said, all right. It was kind of a um, be careful what you wish for moment. God gives them a king. The first king, Saul, starts out great, but eventually turns his back on the Lord. And And there was David, who who was a good king, and yet even though he was a good king, a man after God's own heart, he was still a man in need of a savior himself, because he often acted wickedly, forsaking what what the Lord would have him do. Nevertheless, God promised that through David there would be there would come a king who would redeem his people. We see this cycle, the cycle of the judges didn't end with the book of Judges. Even though they had a king, they continued in this cycle of rebellion. And every once in a while there would be a king that would seek to restore the people and bring them back to worshiping the Lord, but they would continue in the rebellion after that king died. And so we see this constant forsaking of things of the Lord. And so, with Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 30, the people pray on. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are a gracious God. People were carried away into captivity, just as God promised He would do if they would not observe the law. And they were carried off into captivity. 
Now, going back all the way to the beginning of the giving of the law, Moses himself declared, it's not enough to have this external observance of the law. You have to circumcise your heart. And the prophets, as they spoke to the people, as they tried to to call them back, you know, again, the, the people were constantly looking for a Savior. Oh, we were in trouble, Lord, save us. And so God sends them a judge, and so they, they, they rejoice. Okay, there's a judge who rescues them physically and saves them physically, and yet they were ignoring that they needed a Savior for their own sinful hearts. This cycle of judges continues on, and things get worse and worse, and finally they get to the point, hey, we need a king. And so they seek after this king. Maybe this king will save us. This king will fight for us. This king will deliver us. All the while not realizing that the troubles that they were experiencing was not because of just physical things in the world. It was because of their own sinful hearts. And so this cycle perpetuates itself. These earthly kings cannot save them. These earthly kings cannot solve the problem of their hearts. And so the prophets speak out. Even when there are times when the people are externally doing things of the law, Isaiah comes and says, I hate your sacrifices, says the Lord. Because you're doing these things externally, and your hearts are still far from me. Ezekiel reiterates what Moses says, that you need to be circumcised of the heart. Ezekiel calls it for a day when when God would take out their hearts of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that that was what they needed. And Jeremiah also speaks of being circumcised in their hearts, calling for an inward renewal. But time and time again, the people are failing to realize that they are powerless to save themselves. They are powerless to observe the law. And and as we are reading this text in Nehemiah, they're, they're recounting all the great things that God has done and all the things they had done. And at the end of this prayer, what are they going to do? They're going to say, all right, now we're going to do it. We're going to keep the law this time. We mean it this time. And that's the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10. It says that we are making a covenant that we are actually going to keep the law. Seems like a high moment. Seems like a neat thing. Like, okay, they, they get it this time. They're going to obey God. And yet, failing to realize that they still need a Savior. Many people look at the book of Nehemiah and say, oh, there's, this is a great book on leadership. And there are many great leadership principles in the book of Nehemiah, but I can't help but almost view Nehemiah as a very depressing book. Because even though there's these, these great moments of establishing the city walls and rebuilding and, and this great moment where these people are coming and says, all right, we're going we're gonna to follow the law now. It is not even one generation later that we come to Nehemiah chapter 13 and all the things that the people promised, hey, we're going to keep the Sabbath, we're, we're going to not defile the temple, we're going to do these things, all the very specific things that they promised that they wouldn't do or would do, those are the very things that they're breaking again in Nehemiah 13. It's like, we're not even a generation removed, guys. Like, what are you doing? Because they failed to realize what they needed was not just a stronger commitment. They needed the Christ. They needed the Messiah. They failed to grasp that they needed a deliverer, not from Babylon, not from Persia, 
not from the Canaanites, but from their own sinfulness and from the consequences of their own sinfulness. They needed a Savior for their own hearts. And that is how the narrative portion, again, that's Nehemiah is not the last book of the Old Testament as we're looking canonically inside of our Bibles, but chronologically in the timeline, this is how the Old Testament ends with this sad state of the people failing to reckon with the sinfulness of their own hearts. Well, in the time between the Testaments, there's a variety of things that unfold. The Persian, there's a world empires rise and fall. The Persians fall to the Greeks. The Greeks fall to Rome. The Jews fight these gruesome battles, suffer bitter defeats, seek to vie for their own independence and fail to do so, are conquered by the Romans. And now we come to the New Testament. Where John the Baptist comes on the scene and calls the people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 400 years later, much has changed culturally. The word of the Lord is still true and the the Jews still had the the testimony of the law and the prophets, etc., And Israel is still looking for a deliverer. The Jews had some degree of freedom of worship at that time. They were under Roman rule, but they could could offer their sacrifices. The Romans were permissive of that. In fact, Herod, who was their king over them, he was the one who had built them a temple so that they could offer their sacrifices. It was one way that the Romans sought to promote peace amongst the land. It's okay, you pay us taxes and we'll let you worship your God as you please and we won't squash you. And so that was part of the agreement. Okay, we'll pay our taxes, we'll, we'll submit to the Roman leadership, but in exchange we get to worship as we see fit. So there was some degree of autonomy, but they were still under Roman rule. They were still not governing themselves. They still were paying high taxes. And so Israel was still looking for a deliverer. And Jesus Christ comes on the scene. The angels, of course, foretell of this one, that a Savior, Christ the Lord, is coming. The angel told it to Mary that the one who is born to you will save her people from her sins. This is what would come. But Jesus' ministry shows us that the greatest need that we have is not liberation from political foes, but liberation from sin within our own hearts. Turn with me over to John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking with the, with the Jews and the leaders of that day and wrestling with them. There's this John is very concerned about the identity of who Jesus Christ is and presenting him as the one that we should believe. And there's conflict within the book of some who believe and some who do not. There is disagreements about who Jesus Christ is and different reactions 
to the words that Jesus says. And we're going to pick things up in verse 31, where Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? They, they kind of took offense at Jesus' words. They, they took offense there. They said, no, we are, we are free people. But Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the Son that sets you free, you will be free indeed. Ah, the Son is our deliverer. The Son is our Savior. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and God sent them Moses to deliver them. Well, more importantly, here we are today. And then the Jews in their, their entire life, this was the state of their hearts the whole time. They were slaves of sin. They, they didn't even recognize that aspect of things. They, they recognized their slavery in Egypt. All the while, they're slaves to their own sin. They needed a Savior from that. And Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This was the issue the entire time. It wasn't the Egyptians it wasn't the Canaanites. It wasn't the Babylonians or the Persians. It was their own sin. And this is our problem as well. You know, here we are. We live in America. We think of ourselves as a free people. Right? Home of the free, land, or land of the free, home of the brave, or however that saying goes. I just messed, messed it up. <laughs> we think of ourselves that way, right? We're independent people here. And yet, we are in bondage to our own sin and in need of a Savior, a Deliverer, a Rescuer from our own sin. Again, this is what the angel said, again, to, to Mary. He will save His people from their sins. This is what the angels declared to the shepherds. A Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Saved from our sin. Well, Last couple of passages that I want us to look at as we consider this concept of salvation. Romans chapter 5. We speak of salvation. Okay, what are we saved from? Or what are we saved to? We, we hear of the angel's words. He will save his people from their sin. Well, why is it that our sins make us in need of salvation? What do our sins do to us that requires us to be rescued from that? And we have the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Most fundamentally, this is the issue. Our sin drives us out of the garden. Our sin prevents us from being in that right relationship with the Lord, with, with, from being His 
fully fulfilling our design as God's representatives on the earth. Our sin corrupts us and makes us unable to stand before a holy God. And if we do not have a rescuer, our fate will be as described in Revelation 21, verse 8, which says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But unto you is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the good news of Christmas. This whole history that we've recounted of the Jews and their their entire journeys from, from Abraham all the way through the Old Testament, yearning for a deliverer, yearning for a Savior, and now we have a Savior, but delivering much more than just political enemies and physical foes, a deliverer for our own hearts to save us from the wrath of God that rightly, justly should be poured out upon us. We have the good news. And I close with this text from Romans chapter 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this Savior, this Deliverer. Israel was searching and seeking for a Savior, her whole existence, yearning for someone who would lead them and save them. And you have provided that person in Jesus Christ, a Rescuer, a Deliverer. Deliverer from our own sin a rescuer from your righteous and just wrath. And all who have faith in this deliverer receive salvation. Thank you, Lord, for this time of year that we can celebrate and remember these things. Thank you for the gift of your Son. I pray that we would rejoice in what you have given us, this Savior. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.